Ah, yeah, what a blessing to be here with you today and to bring the word. You can turn to Philippians 4. We'll be there in a few minutes. Philippians chapter 4. I came across a story about an airplane pilot who, while flying, always looked down intently on a certain valley in the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, he would always look to this valley when his plane passed over his paint, plane passed overhead. One day, his co-pilot asked, "What's so interesting about that spot that you always look at?" And the pilot replied, "Well, you see that lake. When I was a child, I used to sit down there on a log and fish. Every time an airplane flew over, I would look up and wish I were the one flying that plane. But now I look down." and wish I were the one fishing. Can you relate to that story in some way? If you place yourself in a proverbial plane flying over the landscape of your life today, would you be wishing that you were somewhere else, a greener pasture, the dream job, maybe a fairy tale wedding? Or perhaps you ponder about having something more, a a larger paycheck or a bigger house, or a more comfortable lifestyle. All of us can recount good and precious gifts that our Heavenly Father has given us, encouraging us, and meeting our needs far and beyond what we need. And surely all of you can also relate to those desires that are left unfulfilled. And perhaps it's been a bitter pill to swallow. If I just had a little more of this or my situation would be a little more like that, then, then everything would be fine, and life would then be satisfying. And then I would realize the happiness and fulfillment that I seek, or at least that is the way I would hope. Today's lesson, we'll be looking at the comforting, whoops, right there, the comforting virtue of contentment. The comforting virtue of contentment. God desires contentment for his people. And God's word defines it not only as a virtue to pursue, but a command to follow. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8 might be a familiar passage as I read it to you here. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be contempt. We won't have to think on this too long to come to the conclusion that the contentment that God describes here is completely antithetical and opposed to much false teaching today. The essence of health and wealth gospel, God wants you to be affluent. God never wants you lacking materially. It is never God's will for you to be in want, and this False teaching really espouses what we might call a holy dissatisfaction, even though it's everything but holy. The more stuff, the better. Sow a seed, and God will provide an abundance of stuff. Rather than encouraging true holiness and dependence on God's providential and gracious provision, this false teaching caters to discontented, sinful desires for more. And it tragically relegates God more to an ATM, who offers unlimited withdrawals in order to cater to our every want and desire. In this brand of bad theology, God is fashioned into sinful man's own image. 
into a heavenly game show host, if you will, who becomes the one who draws the curtain to fulfill your next craving or to fulfill your next dream. And it should also be no mystery that incessant advertising in our culture is designed to convince you and me that you need something that you never knew you needed. Your new smartphone, with all its allure and features, will in a few years never compete with with dancing K-pop stars and sports celebrities touting the glamour of something newer and the necessity of you sprinting to the store, while supplies last, to purchase your current phone's replacement. So what is contentment? What is contentment? The word itself means to be self-sufficient, to be satisfied to have enough or to be adequate. If I would give you a definition of contentment, it would be like this. Christian contentment is a God-oriented disposition of peace and satisfaction in any and all circumstances. Now notice we're saying that this contentment is God-oriented. It is God-dependent. There is a contentment that's practiced all around us in our culture today in a humanistic sense, right? It's practiced in an autonomous and man-centered manner. The self-made man can have a contentment, but it is worldly, and it's devoid of any authentic reliance and dependence on God. Lou Priolo, who had been here a few years ago to one of our Truth and Light conferences, He calls contentment a God-dependent self-sufficiency. A God-dependent self-sufficiency. Jeremiah Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a classic 400 years ago, a Puritan writer. Uh, I always do better with the English standard versions of uh, translations of their old English, but wow, the rare jewel of Christian contentment would be a wonderful book to add to your collection. And Burroughs described contentment like this. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment. We'll be going over more of what that phrase and what this definition means here as we go along, but let's be real here first. Our sin nature is bent on dissatisfaction with what we have, what we wear, with what we eat. That's why Christ warned us in Matthew 6, do not be anxious about your life, because in our sin nature, we are discontented. We invariably see evidence of of discontent at a young age, don't we? When I was a young lad and very unsaved, I was a conniver and a manipulator. It was my M.O., And I learned to scheme and use my brothers, all three of them, to get my way, one way or the other. One day in a room full of toys, I wanted the one ball that was already in my brother Frankie's hands, and the one he was unwilling to give me in my impatient insistence. And so I took out my forearm, placed it into my mouth, and I bit down as hard as I could. I'd bit down so hard that my teeth would leave an impression, what teeth I had as a toddler, left an impression on my arm. And uh, I then proceeded to scream, Mommy, Mommy, Frankie, bit me. And so my 
caring and unsuspecting mother quickly arrived and whisked away my brother to another room for a healthy talking to. And the ball I desired was conveniently available to little Richie. A discontented spirit. If you ever had doubts about the depravity of man showing up at a young age, those doubts are now dispelled, okay? A discontented spirit. When left unchecked, it invariably fuels a life, pursuit, and desire to acquire much more than we really need. We can expend so much energy in an attempt to alter circumstances that God has sovereignly placed in us and around us for our purposes. And soon the people around us that God calls us to love and serve become tools of manipulation to help us acquire what we so desperately want. At this point, you might ask yourself, am I discontented? How can I know if I lack contentment? Well, when you visit a doctor for a routine checkup, we can expect a litany of questions, can't we? And they are asked to help diagnose your physical condition. So here are several questions that may help us to spiritually diagnose the presence of any discontentment. <clears throat> Do I envy what others have, things that I so desperately want for myself? If I only had their marriage, or I had their children's behavior, or their income, or their circumstances. And so we carry a grudging discontent or malice toward those who possess or have these things. Here's another question. Am I anxious about the needs of my life or worried about an uncertain outcome of the future? If so, I carry a burden of worrisome care and distress where I have allowed various concerns to dominate my mind and thinking in fears to deprive me of my rest and my sleep and my tranquility. Another question might be, have I been grumbling against God and others, complaining about my circumstances? What I own is lacking, or how I've been treated is unfair, or my circumstances are just completely unacceptable. Another question might be, does irritability or, or anger define my disposition when others do things that affect my plans? If only I was in charge at work, then we would finally get this ship moving in the right direction. If only I had some peace and quiet when caring for my children, who always seem to find a way to, to find harm's way when I sit down for some much-needed quiet time. One final question might be, do I spend much more time and energy thinking about material things than spiritual things? If any of these describe your situation, then you may very well need to pursue contentment. If you cannot relate to any of these, I would invite you to take your two fingers right here in your vein and see if you still feel pulse, okay? Because we all struggle with discontentment. We all do. And discontentment, when you or I allow it to persist in our lives, brings much unhappiness and misery. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher and author in the 1600s, laid it out quite plainly about the misery that accompanies discontentment. He said it's an anxious state of mind which dries the brains wastes the spirits, and corrodes and eats away the comfort of life. Discontent keeps us from enjoying what we have. Perhaps you can look back on the landscape of your life and identify times and seasons of significant unhappiness or lingering dissatisfaction. 
It can be very easy to keep the car of your life left idling in the parking lot we call misery. And so we can come to just accept joylessness as our lot in life, an albatross of sorts that we have come to believe is destined to remain. Well, the scriptures inform us that this state of sinful discontentment is not what God intends, and that you do not have to resign yourself to this condition. There's hope, there's promise and relief when you heed God's instruction to appropriate godly contentment in your life. If we could go back to Jeremiah Burroughs on contentment, listen to these comforting words of this virtue, this comforting virtue we call contentment. It is a box of precious ointment, very comforting and useful for troubled hearts in times of troubled conditions. Contentment is that spirit-induced hydration that brings life and vitality to a dry soul. And it may be just what the doctor ordered for peace and comfort that you've been longing for. So what we want to do today, in the remainder of our time, is look at five, pe- five lessons from Paul on the comforting virtue of contentment. <clears throat> and if you're there at Philippians 4, I'm going to read verses 10 through 13 for you. Follow with me. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So as we look at five lessons from Paul on the comforting virtue of contentment, our first lesson from Paul that we're going to see is contentment is realizing that God's present provision is sufficient. God's present provision is sufficient. Now we need to take a few moments and orient ourselves a little bit as we're swooping into uh, the middle or towards the end of, of Philippians here. You might know that Paul was writing this letter to the church of Philippi while under house arrest, while chained around the clock to a Roman soldier. Circumstantially speaking, we could say that this was one of the low points in Paul's life and ministry, and there were certainly many. Isolation, loss of freedom to make one's own decisions, inability to do ministry, deprived of any luxury, And to pour the proverbial salt in the wound, we just need to look at the reason for this prison time, and that's his passion and love for the Lord Jesus and the sharing of the gospel. And in the midst of this, the Philippian church sends Epaphroditus to share gifts with Paul. This may have been some monetary funds, some clothing, perhaps some food. It was really a care package of sorts. If you you look there at verse 18, you'll see uh, Paul mentioning this. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so this entire section of Philippians here is really a thank you letter, an affectionate thank you to this dear church for sending Epaphroditus and the receipt of this thoughtful care package. Now turn over to verse 10. 
And let's look at the wording there. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What is Paul talking about here? You revived your concern for me. Well, the same Philippian church that Paul had founded had previously given to him to meet his needs. If you jump over to verse 15 and 16 of chapter 4, you'll, you'll see that here. It says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The ministry of Paul and Silas that's chronicled in Acts to the Philippians is in Acts chapter 16 and 17. However, this ministry to them and the, and the material things and the gifts that were given at that time is believed it could have been about 10 years between that gift and now the gift that Epaphroditus is bringing to him. And thus he says, you have revived your concern for me. Now, on its face, that might seem kind of tragic to see years go past like that. Was Paul abandoned and forgotten by the Philippians? And in the context here, we see no insinuation of that whatsoever. In fact, we see just the opposite. No words of displeasure, no anger, no regret. Paul is here rejoicing and giving thanks, not just for what he received, but for how God will bless them in giving these generous gifts to him. He says there, but you had no opportunity. When probably the Philippian church was a poor church, perhaps a time and distance between them and Paul made them unaware of Paul's needs. Whatever it was, Paul's statement clarifies the fact that the Philippians were prevented from giving to Paul any sooner. Now in verse 11, Paul makes an interesting statement and really our main point here. He says in verse 11a, not that I am speaking of being in need. Really a staggering statement if you think about it. Think about it. I don't know about you, but I look at Paul's situation and all I think about is this guy's got some big time needs. I mean, a care package is great. Loving, sincere, most helpful and wonderful expression of love. But if I were in Paul's shoes, oh, I'd be demanding my rights. I'd be clamoring still for my freedom. I would at least want a file tucked away in that apple pie from Philippi so perhaps I could break free from those chains. And then, then we can start talking about not being in need. But consider this statement again. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Paul had already realized contentment and satisfaction before he received this most recent gift from Philippi. Paul's contentment was realizing that God's present provision was sufficient. Paul's contentment with his current condition reminds us that I'm greatly mistaken to believe that my ticket to contentment is when I finally get what I believe I really need. It's a false notion that the only real way to dispel the drudgery of discontentment is to actually get what I want, or to just have more of it. John D. Rockefeller, the wealthy oil tycoon of the late 1800s and early 1900s, he became America's first billionaire. He amassed a fortune worth nearly 2% of the entire U.S. economy. Elon Musk, eat your heart out, right? 
when Rockefeller was asked once, how much money is enough money? He famously replied, just a little bit more. Charles Spurgeon always puts it better. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Perhaps you, like me, have been out shopping for a car before. You do your homework, you make your low offer, fully expecting to haggle and negotiate. But the unexpected happens. Your lowball offer is immediately accepted. And your first reaction is, contentment, joy, wonderful, I got just exactly what I asked for. No, we don't think that way. I should have offered lower. And it bugs us for the rest of the day, doesn't it? Even when we get what we ask for, we can still walk away with discontent. Now, let's be clear here. Paul's contentment before, before the gift doesn't negate times of receiving that bring great cause for rejoicing and thanksgiving. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And we have many reasons to extend thanksgiving to the Lord for his bountiful provision. The TBC family gives regularly with thankful hearts for the God we serve and the wonderful provision he has provided to each one of us. Many of you regularly extend mercy and kindness to those in need in a myriad of ways, monetarily and otherwise. But contentment realizes that God's present provision is sufficient. Let's go to our second point here as we look at five lessons from Paul on the comforting virtue of contentment. And the second one is this. Contentment does not come naturally. Rather, it is learned. Look there at verse 11 and 12 with me. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The times in my life when I've battled discontentment, I have found encouragement in these words, I have learned. Paul makes this statement twice, as if to ensure we don't miss it. Learning contentment means that the contentment I don't have today can be something I actually realize tomorrow. Paul actually achieved contentment. Contentment is not merely an idealistic quest uh, with no hope of victory. That word learned is past tense. Realizing contentment was not an endless pursuit for Paul. However, I have learned shows that attaining an attitude of contentment takes time. It is not automatic. We don't merely write in a request for contentment expecting its arrival in tomorrow's mail. Contentment, like other Christian traits, is something that requires effort that we have to fight for in the sanctification process as we strive and labor with the Spirit's help. Therefore, don't be discouraged in the battle against discontentedness. You cannot learn contentment unless you address the struggle with your discontentment. There will be a battle. Don't be discouraged because you're in the battlefield fighting against sin and fighting for sanctification. We remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not just, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, of course, when we see work out your salvation, we're not talking about earning a right standing with God here. Only the work of Christ will suffice for that. But what this passage speaks to is the practical outworking of living the Christian life, putting off sin, putting on righteousness. And with today's topic, you could replace the word, work out your own salvation, with this right here, work out your own contentment. That's the battle. It's not just a platitude. Work out your salvation. If you're discontented today, you need to work out your contentment. Learn it. It is not automatic. It won't come freely. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come with just a good night's sleep. It doesn't come when tax time comes and you get the return and then leaves when if you don't get a good return. It's learned. It's learned. We must pursue contentment to learn contentment. There is a school of contentment, as there was for Paul in his various trying circumstances. So you might ask yourself here, what school does God have me enrolled in now to teach me contentment? Perhaps you look at your current job, and although it may not be the long-term landing spot, you certainly don't want to be there forever. But you're going to learn as you fight for contentment. Learn contentment now, realizing that God's provided your needs above and beyond what you need and been so gracious and kind with the work that you have. You learn contentment in your current job. That car that broke down again. Learn to be satisfied now until you can afford something better. With God's provision today, be satisfied. Perhaps there's dissatisfaction in marriage and you learn contentment with your role in the pursuit of a God-honoring relationship, finding the joy in sacrificially loving your spouse that honors your covenant. And you learn satisfaction because you know God is satisfied with this kind of response. And so to learn contentment, we need to travel through the experiences of life where you are tried and God is trusted learning that what God provides is sufficient. Contentment is learned. Let's look at a third lesson from Paul on the comforting virtue of contentment. And that is contentment must be pursued in any circumstances. In any circumstances. Going back to verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here Paul's describing the changing circumstances that he experienced throughout his ministry. The good circumstances you see there in verse 12, to abound, facing plenty, having abundance. There's surely lessons to learn with contentment when we have more than we need because we oftentimes want more in those situations. But he also lists the bad circumstances, to be brought low, to hunger, to be in need. Paul was not fixated on what he could have had or what he believed that he 
deserved. Think with me. It's difficult circumstances that steal away contentment more than anything else. I know that's true in my life. We permit circumstances to victimize us to the state of dissatisfaction, worry, and complaining. We could say our response to circumstances often resembles the movement of a weather vane on top of a farmhouse. When the winds of change are favorable, the weather vane of our hearts responds with happiness. And when the winds of change and circumstances are less than favorable, the weather vane of our hearts are tempted toward grumbles and complaints. And here in verse 11, Paul tells us that no matter the direction of the wind, his weather vane was stable and still. He realized contentment in the good or the bad that came his way. And so contentment is not dependent on favorable circumstances. Consider with me, in God's wonderful grace, there are many seasons in life that are plentiful and abounding with supply, and we rejoice. There are other seasons also from his grace where God takes things away. He has us wait, or he chooses to withhold something that he would really want. And when we're deprived in various ways, we hurt and we long and we're tempted to discontentment. And it's here, when we're brought low, that God lovingly and providentially teaches us how to experience the comforting virtue of contentment. You might recount a time when Paul, experiencing a, a thorn in the flesh, had prayed to God to remove it three times. We don't know what that, flesh, uh, that thorn was, but it was an infirmity. It was a great difficulty for Paul. He recounts God's answer here and his response in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul realized the sufficiency of God's grace in circumstances that denied him what he desired. Notice here, Paul didn't grumble at God's denial. He boasted. Paul saw how foolish it would be to have his desire fulfilled in the absence of God's blessing and power, which would be anything but satisfying to Paul. Rather, he trusted God, finding contentment in his all-sufficient grace that was displayed through his weakness. Now note here, Paul's prayer to have his circumstances changed were not at all wrong. We must go to the Lord in prayer and dependence, and, and then by faith we must accept God's answers if they don't align with our requests. And we do so believing that he only gives good gifts to his children and to find contentment with that. Now you might be asking the question, does, content, does being content mean that I should not strive for a better condition in life? And let's be clear here, contentment does not mean apathy. It does not mean indifference. It's quite acceptable to pursue an education for a better future or to search for a better job with better pay or to pursue a house of your own. 
So how do we strive for something more or better and still practice contentment? And I would say this, I would keep this at the forefront, that whatever we set our hearts to, we always do it to seek God's glory, his glory, and not our own. And therefore, we must always apply God's wisdom to test our motives and to assess our attitudes in times we don't get what we desire. The telltale signs of discontent are grumbling, anxiety, covetousness, or just sinning to ensure we get what we want. So when we strive for better or different and it doesn't pan out, we recognize an opportunity to learn Christian contentment, as Paul did. And so we should work and pursue in a God-honoring way with all our hearts, submitting ourselves to God's sovereign will and providence. Well, if we go back to our passage here, we're going to see a fourth lesson from Paul on the comforting virtue of contentment. We saw contentment is realizing that God's present provision is sufficient. We see contentment doesn't come naturally, rather it is learned. Thirdly, contentment must be pursued in any circumstances. And now contentment is accomplished through Christ's strength. Through Christ's strength. Look there at verse 13 with me, if you will. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A favorite passage of many of ours, certainly one we've memorized, uh, many of us. But this passage can often be loosely interpreted and maybe applied in places it doesn't properly fit. If I would just look at it this way, what this verse does not mean, it does not mean that there isn't anything I set my heart or mind on that God won't bless or empower me to do. As with any passage, to understand its meaning as God intends, we look at the context. And this verse is a progression of thought from Paul's statements in the previous two verses. And so a restatement of Paul's words in Philippians 4.13 might sound like this. This secret of contentment in any of life's difficulties is realized only by Christ's power. Let me say that again. This secret of contentment in any of life's difficulties is realized only by Christ's power. You could call this Paul's declaration of dependence. Paul's declaration of dependence. And therefore, I can do all things, means no matter the situation or place I find myself in, no matter if I'm facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need, I can have an attitude of satisfaction and contentment because of what Christ has promised in his all-sufficient power. Paul's words echo Jesus' teaching, don't they, in John chapter 15, verse 5? I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This abiding is a dependence on Christ and his enablement, resulting in fruitfulness. In the context of our Philippians passage, it's God who empowers us to produce the fruit of contentment as we depend on him. Think with me here. When I have anxious thoughts in Christ's strength, I can retrain my thinking to guide my heart's response to a place of peaceful 
contentment, resting confidently in what he has promised. Listen, when my habitual response to unexpected changes to my plans is grumbling, complaining, or anger, in Christ's strength, I can humbly confess that as sin and replace the wines with a contented attitude of thanksgiving and joy. When I inordinately desire things that God has not seen fit to give me, at least not now, and I respond in anger and frustration, in Christ's strength, I can learn to live without it and be fully satisfied. Think with me here. Paul knew that God was able to change his circumstances. But what he learned was that God's primary interest was in changing Paul. And this is true for you and me today as well. God is committed to fulfilling his loving and gracious purpose to make you and me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In reality, in the midst of that great difficulty and discontentment, God has you right where he wants you. David understood this well when he wrote in the Psalms, Psalm 119, 67, and 68. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You see this attitude of submission. You see this recognition of what God is doing, that, that David didn't sense harm, that he, he did not sense ill will. He did not sense that God had turned his back on him but that he had learned that God had actually used those circumstances to draw him to him, to draw David to God's truth, and to recognize and and place his faith and to place his trust and belief on the goodness and good nature of God and then submitted himself into what God wanted to teach him. In times of want, when we have nowhere else to turn, we come to trust and obey thus allowing God to mold us and make us more in the image of his son. And so you pray to him, you look to him, you wait on him, you get godly counsel, you hang on God's words like you never have before. And it's on this path that contentment is realized in Christ's strength. May God teach us to depend on Christ's enabling power and strength in prayerful dependence. And that takes us to our fifth and final point here, five lessons from Paul on the comforting virtue of contentment, and that's this. Contentment is realized when I trust in God's providential care. If you would turn over to uh, Philippians, uh, a little bit further, in, or before your passes there in Philippians 4, to Philippians 1, verses 12 and 14. Just turn over there for a moment. Let me read verses 12 through 14 of Philippians 1. Contentment is realized when I trust in God's providential care. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is a striking statement. Paul, imprisoned, persecuted, isolated, did not respond to these 
pitiful circumstances with anger or malice or disillusionment. He rather interpreted them as opportunities provided by God to advance the gospel. This attitude is not a statement of just kind of a a hopeful positivity, but rather a certainty of God's providence. Paul was content because this God of providential care is the God that he believed in and trusted in. Christian contentment is undergirded by a settled confidence in God's sovereign control. His control of all the events in my life. All the events. All the events of my life. The easy ones and the difficult ones. This providence I speak of is God's active involvement in all things to ensure that his sovereign, good, loving, and wise purposes are always fulfilled. Paul really believed that God does work all things together for good to all those called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And Paul really believed that the providential ordering of all things by the hand of a loving, wise God will fulfill his plan to conform him to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. And this was enough for Paul. Paul was content with that. Do you recognize that the circumstances you find yourself in today were orchestrated by the Lord? That he purposely is using them specifically as a demonstration of his love and the intent to mold you to be like our Savior? Can I be content with that? Can I be satisfied with God's wise and good plans even when life hurts? Discontentment is an expression of unbelief in God's sovereign control. Discontentment declares that my plans are wiser and they're better than God's. And it's really a rejection of God's sovereign plan. It's a questioning of his love. It it doubts his ability to accomplish all that he has promised. May we be quick to confess and turn to our Lord, trusting and believing in the faithful expression of his goodness and wisdom in the circumstances that he has ordered in my life. Be greatly encouraged because the image of Christ he has promised to produce in you, he will do. And that we can rejoice in. May we find contentment in that today. May we find joy in that. May that be the source of our satisfaction and not the other elusive things that so quickly disappoint. If we go back to um, the words of Jeremiah Burroughs, the comforting virtue of contentment. Remember, he said this, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And there we have it, five lessons from Paul on the comforting virtue of contentment. In the power of Christ, may each of us diagnose and put away the misery of discontentment. And in that same strength, put on the sweet, wonderful, and comforting virtue of contentment. There may be some of you here today that 
are overwhelmed with the burdens of life. Perhaps you've tried to get the most of it and it's just left you unfulfilled and empty. I have good news for you. It is to those that have come to an end of themselves, to those who realize the burden of sin is too great, and now long for your conscience to be cleared, where Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I would implore you to look today to God for your salvation, for your ultimate satisfaction. He is ready to accept and fully forgive through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ all who call out to him by faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, with thankful hearts, we come to you now, Lord, confessing that, oh, so many times in life, with great abundance and goodness, that your merciful hand just provides to us on a daily, minute-by-minute basis, whether it's the next breath we take, the drive home, this wonderful air conditioning, the presence of God's people, the jobs we have, the family we have, whatever it might be, Lord, you've been good and gracious above and beyond what we deserve. Lord, help us to be mindful of discontentment. Help us to, to, to be mindful to diagnose and not just live in a state of misery and discontent, but rather to confess it, to confess our anxiety, our anger, our complaining, our discontentedness, and to find the sweet dispossession, the sweet comfort of finding contentment in you and what you've sought to provide to us. And may you be given the praise and glory as we do that in each of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray today. Amen. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand thank you church uh, so great to see you here today uh, thank you for the worship team and filling in with some of our pastors gone and so forth down in, in Jupiter pray for their safe arrival back uh, as they'll be traveling back uh, from Jupiter back here And um, remember tonight, we meet at 5 p.m., Michael Duncan teaching. So looking forward to singing together with you and and just assembling around God's word. Let's close briefly in prayer. Thank you again, Lord, for your goodness and grace and just abundant blessing in our lives. You are the God of contentment. You are are the God of abundant provision. And to you, we look and now and say thanks. Thank you, Lord. Give us a wonderful day to recount the many blessings you've given to us in Jesus Christ and in many, many other ways. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.